wanted to show y'all how human I was. I've already made a mistake this morning. Trey was supposed to pray up here, but I got nervous. So uh, we'll be all right. We will be all right. It's good to see you guys this morning. I was telling Brandon this morning that, um, you know, it's like uh, what Jeremiah said in his book where he said, I want to quit, but I can't because it's like a fire shut up in my bones. I thank God that I can't quit. I want to quit, but I can't. And um, so I'm fisting to regurgitate this thing that God has laid on my heart for us and hope that we can hear from God this morning. Now, on a recent trip to Brazil, as you know, there was four or five of us that, well, four from here and one other man that went to Brazil. Um, we had a great visit. It's been almost a month. I can't, I can't believe we're already approaching four weeks. But here, here's what I know when I go to Brazil. Here's what I know what happens. The, 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 the more aware that I become of cultural norms or abnorms, because, you see, what works here does not work there. It doesn't. You, 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 you see things and you hear things and you think you know how to apply them to your life and they don't work. Dr. Allen taught me early on, he said, you've got to as quickly as you can turn your American brain off and turn your Portuguese or your Brazilian brain on because your brain, life as you know it here, just doesn't work there. And so I want to, I, I got a hold of the new iPhone 16 and I want to show it to y'all this morning. Um, it can be yours for $1,000 as soon as we get done, all right? You just let me know. But y'all remember as a can, my mother said a, a tin can works better than a styrofoam cup, but this is what I had this morning. But y'all remember how you, how you used to go around the corner and, Miss Maravine, you hold that in right there, and I come over here, and Miss Maravine, you look really nice today. And you can hear me. Yes. You can hear me. Thank you, Miss Maravine. But here's what happens when we go to Brazil. You see, there's pieces of paper that I'm going to call filters that we put along the string between my cup and Miss Maravine's cup so that what I say and what Miss Maravine hears sometimes is two different things. You know, we have filters in our lives. $1,000 right there. So here's what, let me give you some examples. In Brazil, they might say church starts at 7 o'clock. Now, what they just heard, church starts at 7.30, 7.45, 8 o'clock. So you'd work well in Brazil. You sure will. And while that's, that's fine and dandy, I, I know there's filters when I talk to my wife. When you go from man to woman, there's a filter in between. But let me, let me, let me tell you some of the things that just kind of caught me off guard when I first started going to Brazil. Brother Jerry, stand up for me, please. You can stay right there, but stand up. <laughs> now here, I saw this. So church, would y'all join me 
and praying for Jerry. He's going to hell. They absolutely will do that. And that's the same gasp that I had the first time I heard it. Jerry, you can stay, you can stay standing up. I heard one of the pastors say this one time. Now, Jerry's a dear brother of mine. I know he's going to heaven. That's why I'm picking on him, all right? But here's what he said. And by the way, if you're a visitor here this morning, I promise you I'm not going to call you to stand up, okay? We're good. Here's what, here's what one of the pastors said. He said, brother, your blood is not on my hands anymore because I have shared the hope of the gospel with you. I'm going to take the dust and put it off my feet, and I'm going somewhere else that will listen. And so there's filters. You can sit down, brother. Thank you. There's filters that happen between here and there. And you have to learn how to navigate using those filters. You start to realize that you're not in Bonifay anymore. You're not in Chipley. You're not in Graceville anymore. And you're, you're not at home. Things, the cultural norms aren't the same. You can't go to the bathroom like you always have. What happens if you put toilet paper in the bathroom in Brazil is you got a mess, pun intended. It floods out the hall. It floods out in the street. And everybody knows the Americans have come back. You can't do it. Or if you go out in the jungle, there's not even a commode. It's a hole in the ground. And they're like, can we not make the hole a little bigger? And so you realize that life as you know it is not the same. You can't drink water like you used to, right, Perry? First thing Perry did when we got off the airplane, Perry went over to the water fountain in Sao Paulo, and he had a headache, and Perry needed to take a, a, a headache medicine, and Perry reached down and started drinking the water, and I'm across the airport, and I'm going, Perry, no! You can't do that. Why? Because there's bacteria in that water that we're not used to, and it will make us sick very quick. You're helpless. You're a baby. And that's hard for us men and women as adults to grab a hold of that, that I can't just be my own person. I need the help of somebody else. And so these filters start happening in our life, and here's what happens. All our comfort is stripped away. All of our security is stripped away. All the white noise that we put in our head is gone. You know what I mean by white noise. We'll pick that phone up and we'll watch YouTube or we'll watch social media or we'll put music in our ears because we don't want to be alone in our head. And so what happens when all the white noise is gone, then you can hear God maybe just a little bit more clearly. And so that's what happens to me personally in Brazil. Now, I'm not going to say it happens in the course of a week, but over the course of several months, what you start doing is you start losing some of your Americanness, and you start putting on some Brazilianness. And so what happens when you go, Guess what? It happens in reverse when you come home. And this is why, this is why Dr. Allen won't give me a microphone for two months because I'm just liable to tell you what I think because the filters are gone. They're gone. I might tell you, Jerry, you're going to hell. And that wouldn't do good here. It wouldn't. So we got to know 
the sandbox in which we're playing in. And so Dr. Allen very wisely will not give me a microphone for a little while. I can remember talking to Melody. She's in children's church today. But I remember talking to her, and she asked me how I was doing as soon as I got back. First Sunday back, I said, Melody, I'm not good. Why are you not good? Because I went to a service station, and they're talking about how, how hot it is, and they're talking about how this food's not any good, and they're talking about how the bathrooms are not clean. And, and, and on and on and on it goes. And what I want to tell them is, shh, be quiet. Do you not realize you have a commode, you have lights, you have water that you can drink, and all you're going to do is complain about how fast the internet is or is not, and it just overwhelms me. Cheryl has problems going to the grocery store. She's overwhelmed by all the selection that we can just grab this and grab this and grab this and grab that, to where we just left a place where you have to kill what you eat because there's no way to preserve it. We're bringing it a little closer to home. We recently, recently visited one of our sons, and we went to several AA meetings with him, Alcoholics Anonymous. And uh, call me weird, but it's one of the highlights of my trip going to those AA meetings. Why? Because I'm a very black and white person, and all the filters have been taken away. It's black and white. You do this, you're going to die. And I love it because I don't have to guess at what they're thinking. I, I don't have to, I don't have to uh, uh, tiptoe around certain subjects. Hello, my name is so-and-so, and I'm a heroin addict. I'm a meth addict. I'm an I'm a, I'm a alcoholic. Well, welcome, so-and-so. We're glad that you're here. And I get to thinking, you know what? Sometimes church ought to be a little bit more like AA meetings to where we take the filters away and we say, we say, Jamie, if you don't have the Lord, the Bible says you must be born again and you're going to go to hell if you don't. But instead, what we do is we try to love them into hell. And so I become more aware of what's going on. So church, I just want to set the stage this morning and let you guys know, hello, my name is Christopher Dane Caldwell, and I'm a sinner. And this is where y'all go, hey, Dane Caldwell, we're glad you're here. Thank you. But it's, it's impossible to have external cultural norms pressing in on you and not be impacted. So the ultimate result is that you become more spiritually aware. You have a direct line to God. All these things are not in the way anymore. And I think about, uh, 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 I think about some stories in the Bible. I think about the children of Israel as they're standing on the edge of the Red Sea. Pharaoh's armies bearing down on them. You see, everything they've known is gone. Egypt is what they know. Now they're at the edge of the Red Sea, and they look out, and they see a vast ocean. And they, and they turn around, and they see Pharaoh's army coming. And here's what they know. They know, God, if you don't show up, we're in trouble. And that's exactly where God wants us to be. So that if he doesn't show up, we're in trouble. But you see, what we do in our culture I can talk about our culture because I am one. We pull out our billfold 
and we get the next airplane over the Red Sea. And what happens is you don't see God part it when you do that. I think about Elijah on Mount Carmel as he's fighting the prophets of Baal. Remember what the Bible says there in, in uh, I can't remember it's first or second Kings 18, but it says he stepped up and he said, God, so that these people will know that you, Yahweh, are God, do your thing. And the Bible says that the fire fell from heaven and licked up the, the, the wet offering. And they knew, they said, surely you're God, he is king. And so that's why we, that ought to be our attitude when we come to church. It's not to come listen to a pastor. It's not to come listen to music. It's to leave here and go, God showed up today. Surely he is God. I think about not only the prof, uh, the prof, Elijah on Mount Carmel, but I, I think about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, Brandon. I think about there in, in, in the fiery furnace in the book of Daniel. Well, they say to King Nebuchadnezzar, I believe it is, I don't remember if it's Darius or Nebuchadnezzar, it doesn't matter. But they say to him, I'm not going to bow down to this image that you have created. If God didn't show up, they're going to be in trouble. And guess what? He did. He did. There was a fourth man in the fire. But what we want to do is bow down. We don't see God. And so, I'm left with the opportunity to share with you this morning. So Brazil does that to me. So, What I want to say to us this morning is I want to, this, this is kind of, I'm laying my cards on the table here this morning. Because this is, I talked to Dr. John when we were in Brazil. It's, it's, he showed me a verse in Luke chapter 3 verse 6 where John the Baptist is talking and he says, that They will see the salvation of the Lord. And that's really at my heart. And I think it's at your heart too. I hope it is. Because the only thing that's going to make us leave our comfort, to leave our security, and go and tell the world about the only hope there is, is if we get rid of everything and we've got a direct line to the throne room of God. I want to, I want to, I want the church to see the salvation of the Lord fresh and new. I'm in a lot of churches across our land. I've, I've preached in West Texas all the way to up into Virginia and everywhere in between. And let me tell you something, Grace Church. The church in America is sick. I may need to work on that filter a little bit. Because you can't just say that everywhere. Well, let's call a spade a spade this morning. 
So with that said, let's pray and then turn our attention to Isaiah chapter 6 and look at this passage together with this thought in mind. Oh, what a view. Oh, what a view. Let's read first. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1, the entire chapter here. The Bible says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it, and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom, who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I, send me. He said, Go and tell this people, keep on listening. But do, do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of the people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is failed. The holy seed is its stump. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. Lord, I just pray more this morning that as your servant John the Baptist said, Father Lord, that everybody in here would decrease so that you might increase. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Oh, what of you? At about five months post-conception, I was hoping Tiffany would be here this morning, I would ask her, but at about five months post-conception, each of us had one million fiber optic, or not fiber optic, just nerve endings leaving our optic nerve center, going to our brain. At the same time, one million nerve endings left the brain growing toward the eyeball. One million out of one million times, they had to link up perfectly. And as soon as the last one did, we could see. Scientists tell us that the eyeball is the most complicated technical instrument in the universe. 
But when we think about a view, it normally would involve the use of our eyes. But as fearfully and wonderfully made as we are, that is not how I want us to see this morning. I remember a couple of weeks ago, as soon as we got back, Brother Perry, sitting in Grace Group, we were talking about what happened down there with Pastor Duval. Pastor Richie shared it with you guys, what happened when he heard in Portuguese, what he, when, when Pastor Richie preached in English, Duval heard it. And he was able to interpret it from English into Portuguese. And I couldn't understand it. Neither could Aubrey, neither could Dr. John, neither could Perry. And here's what Perry said. He said, if I was sitting in church and I heard that, I would be like, yeah, right. I'll believe it when I see it. But Perry said that night sitting in Grace Group, he said, guys, you can believe it. I've seen it. Now let me tell you what Perry saw, because Perry didn't understand anything that Duval said because he's talking in Portuguese. So Perry saw it. What he's saying is, I saw an experience. I had an experience. I heard it with my ears. I saw it with my eyes. I smelled it with my nose. I could touch it. I could taste it. You still taste those grub worms, can't you, brother? I could taste what was going on. That's what I want us to do this morning with this passage. I want us to jump into Isaiah chapter 6, and I want us to see ourselves here. Here's what, here's what Jeff Wisner said. Listen to this. He says, preachers must give great attention to the structure of a passage because the Spirit has inspired not only its content, but also its contour. The shape of a passage reveals the point of a passage, and the point of the passage must control the point of our message. So let's look, let's listen, let's feel the contours of this story as the content rises and falls, giving us a clear view of what God is teaching Grace Truth, Grace Church through the prophet Isaiah as he is taken from a place of conviction to a place of cleansing and finally to a place of, uh, of commission. I want you to see the progression as we move through the story. It's like one of those 40 theaters that we see at Disney World. You know the one where you go in there and they, they, they throw, throw water on you? Your seat might be moving up under your rear end. They touch you. They, they, you can smell it. That's what I want us to be here in Isaiah chapter 6 this morning. And so the first thing that we see is Isaiah's view of God was brought into focus because of his own conviction. Because of his own conviction. Look at, look at the first two verses and look at what Isaiah saw. The Bible says, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted in the train of his robe, filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. These verses tell us what Isaiah saw in this heavenly vision. Stated more vividly, they not only told us what he saw, but they told us when he saw it. 
Now, it would have been enough for the author, Isaiah, to have started Isaiah chapter 6 with this. I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, and we could say amen, and we could go home. But that's not how he started. He said, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. He wanted us to know when this vision occurred. Well, it occurred in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, we know a lot about King Uzziah because his life is chronicled in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. That's for future reading if you want to go home and read it this afternoon. 2 Chronicles 26 and also in 2 Kings 15, the first seven verses, talks about this great king. And he was a great king. Here's what we know. He was 16 years old when he began. Cain, stand up, please. Where's Cain? He's gone. Right there he is. This is King Uzziah. 16-year-old young man. Congratulations, young man. You're now the President of the United States. What are we going to do? You can go on and do what you're going to do. Thank you. Don't get up and leave. I'll call you out. (laughs) Oh, me. We know that he was 16 years old. We know that he reigned for 52 years. That means he was 68 years old when he died. According to tradition, Isaiah's father Amos and Uzziah's father Amaziah were brothers. Well, that makes Isaiah and Uzziah first cousins. We know that he was a good king. 2 Kings 15 says, He did what was right in the sight of the Lord. 2 Chronicles 26.5 says, He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. We know that he was a great military leader. He led Israel in many victories over the Philistines and other neighboring nations. 2 Chronicles 26.8 says, His fame extended to the borders of Egypt. For he became exceedingly strong. But church's life was cut short. Because we know in 2 Chronicles 26, 16, we know that this is the king who wanted to be priest and king. This is the one who entered into that place where he wasn't allowed to go. It says, but when he was strong, his heart was lifted up, was prideful to his destruction, for he transgressed against the Lord, his God, by entering the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Church, we know that there's only one priest and king, and his name is Jesus Christ. King Uzziah was not him. And God will deal with us the same way that he deals with him if we're not careful. God immediately made him leprous. And so King Uzziah, the most powerful man in all of Judah, died in isolation because he transgressed God. To say that King Uzziah died is to say a lot. It's to say that a wise king died. It's to say that a wise king who had a tragic end died. It's to say that Isaiah's cousin died. It's to say that Isaiah's connection to power, Isaiah probably grew up in the palace. It's to say that his connection to power died. It's to say that his connection to comfort and to safety died. Isaiah, as his life as he knew it, died. 
You can almost hear Isaiah screaming, and I know you can do this because I've done it myself. My God, what are you doing? What are you doing right now? Can't you see that I'm giving my life to you? And this is what you go and do? I can hear him saying it. The Bible says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted. Where was Yahweh, the Lord God, in all of this? The Bible says that the Lord was sitting on His throne. The Bible says that He was high and lifted up. God is still in control. He's still in charge. There wasn't an emergency meeting that was happening in heaven because Isaiah's life had changed. Because Uzziah had died. Listen, church, our earthly circumstances, you know the ones that we see with our eyes, they do not change God's eternal position. Y'all didn't hear me. I said our earthly circumstances do not change God's uh, eternal position. And for that, we can say amen and we can go. We can go. We can rest assured that whatever's going on in our life, that God is in control. Listen, God doesn't sit on a chair in heaven. We're sitting in chairs this morning. You see, anyone can sit on a chair. Only sovereign kings sit on a throne. Only judges sit on a throne. Atheists, they say there ain't a throne. There isn't a throne. Humanists will say that there is a throne, but man is sitting on it. But the Bible says that there is a throne in heaven and the Lord God Almighty is the one that is sitting on it. Church, let me ask you, what emergency are you dealing with this morning? What is your Uzziah? What is that thing that's between you and God? Is it your billfold? Is it your job? Is it your health? What is it this morning? Is, is your health failing? Have you lost your comfort? Have you lost your security? Have you lost your freedom? Maybe it's your job. Maybe it's your church this morning. Or maybe it's something else. But brothers and sisters, let me encourage you this morning because no matter what it is, we know where God is. He's sitting on His throne. The Bible goes on to say the train of his robe filled the temple. There wasn't any room for anything else in the temple. His robe filled every last square inch of it. And there's nothing else that belongs there. His robe filled the temple. The Bible says that seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. <clears throat> With two he covered his face, and with two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. Now, around the throne of God, high and lifted up, there are these angels. These created beings. They're not eternal. Only God's eternal. These created beings that are hovering, if you will, with their wings around the throne. <clears throat> They're known as cherubim later on in Isaiah. 
They're known as cherubim in Ezekiel. They're known as the living creatures when we go to the book of Revelation. But the, the name seraphim, it means fiery ones. It means burning ones. So I want you to imagine, you can feel the heat coming off of these seraphim as you're in the throne room and you see God high and lifted up and you see these creatures and you're just in awe and you can feel the heat coming off of them. Maybe you can feel the, the air as they're flapping their wings. Two wings cover their face. <clears throat> the irony of the fiery ones covering their face, that's so funny. I mean, think about that. The burning ones having to cover their face. It's like our son, when he goes into the, the throne room of God, the son says, i got to cover my eyes because the Shekinah glory of God is so bright that our son cannot even look on God himself. With two wings, they cover their feet. And with two wings, they fly. Here's what Spurgeon said. Thus they have four wings for adoration, two for active energy, four to conceal themselves, and two with which to occupy themselves in service. And we may learn from them that we shall serve God best when we are most deeply reverent and humbled in his presence. Veneration must be in larger proportion than bigger. Adoration must exceed activity. As Mary at Jesus' feet was preferred to Martha and her merch serving, so much sacred reverence take the first place and energetic service follow in due course. So not only do we understand what Isaiah saw, but secondly, church, I want us to look at the next two verses and listen to what Isaiah heard. Listen to what he heard. The Bible says, And one, one of the seraphim, called out to another and said, These fiery ones aren't even addressing God sitting on the throne. They're talking to each other. They're talking. Can you see the vision this morning? They're, they're proclaiming his characteristics. They're proclaiming his nature to one another. Listen, church, we need to forget the three-piece suits and the skinny jeans and anything else that, might, that we might wear to bring attention to ourselves. We need to forget the fog machine and the lights and Sunday morning karaoke and everything we do to try and replicate the throne room of God and start proclaiming one to another how great is our God. These seraphim are saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. We all know, or maybe we don't, but in the Hebrew language to say holy, holy, holy is, is the Lord to proclaim His holiness in the, is the highest possible degree. Listen, they don't, they don't have like holy, holier, holiest. To say it thrice, three times is the greatest level of adoration that they could have said. Holiness at its root means to be set apart. Set apart. Holiness describes someone or something which is set apart from other people 
or other things. That's why the Holy of Holies was only there for the high priest who could go in once a year. It was set apart. And that's why, that's why King Uzziah died because he went into that which he was set apart from. That's why in Numbers chapter <clears throat> 5, I'm just going to lose my voice. That's why in Numbers chapter 5, the Bible tells those that have the issue of blood, those that have the, 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 the touch of dead body, those that uh, have leprosy, they must be put outside the camp because it says that God said that I am holy and I am dwelling among you. Holiness and sin can't cohabitate. Light and darkness cannot exist together. <clears throat> so what is God set apart from? Well, we know that He isn't a part of creation. In fact, in the very first verse of the Bible, He says, in the beginning, God. We know in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, in the beginning was God. So we know that whenever the beginning occurred, which is referring to this time-space universe, God already existed. We know that He's not a part of it. He's not a creature. He exists outside of creation. Listen, if all of creation were to dissolve like snow, on a warm summer day, God would remain. He is set apart from humanity. His nature is divine. It's not human. He's not Superman or Iron Man or Spider-Man. It's not that he's smarter than any man or stronger than any man. He's not older. He's not better. God isn't measured in relationship to us. But we are measured in relation to Him. He is divine. We are human. It's interesting that no other characteristic is mentioned three times in the Bible. It's not that you hear love, 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 or grace, 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 or mercy, mercy, mercy. It's almost as if this holiness character is at the very fabric, very deep. It's a holy love. It's a holy grace. It's a holy mercy. It's not until you get to the book of Revelation that you hear, woe, 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 cursed, 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 because he's referring to us. The Bible goes on to say, the whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Can you, can you feel the weight of these seraphim's voices as they worshipped and poor old Isaiah was, was hiding behind the doorpost and he's peeking into this throne room. A lot of people will say to me, and I've even said it myself. What I'm going to say or what they're going to ask God when they get to heaven. <laughs> I don't think so. I believe we're going to fall flat on, flat on our face. 
I believe that we're going to not be able to talk. This smoke reminds us of the smoke that covered Mount Sinai in Exodus 19. And the cloud of God's Shekinah glory that filled the temple in 1 Kings 8. We see what Isaiah saw. We hear what Isaiah heard, but look at verse 5 and experience what he felt. Woe is me, for I am ruined. There were two things that might, made Isaiah think that he was ruined. First was the sight and the sounds of these seraphim. I mean, can you imagine? These seraphim. I mean, when, when, when King David called for the census, remember the, the one angel that stuck his arm out and 70 of them, 70,000 died. He stuck his arm out and God said, stop. I'm glad he didn't wave it. And these seraphim are flying around the throne and they're, and they're worshiping God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus says he has a, a legion of these angels waiting to come. But he stayed on the cross. So Isaiah saw the sight and heard the sound of the seraphim. He saw their humility. He witnessed their obedience. He heard their praise to God. He heard them cry out, holy, holy, holy. And he understood that he couldn't replicate this because he was a man of unclean lips. Second was the vision of the Lord God. This vision of the Lord magnified what kind of man Isaiah was. Isaiah didn't even compare to the seraphim, much less the Lord. And this vision made him sick to his stomach. Woe is me. I am a man of unclean lips. The more clearly he saw, heard, and experienced God sitting on his throne in all his glory, the more he understood his condition as a sinful man. Listen, church, being ruined is not a bad place to be. One commentator said God will never do anything until he has first of all undone us. And this is what we're seeing happening to Isaiah in the throne room. The Bible goes on to say, because I am a man of unclean lips and I will dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Isaiah un understood his problem more vividly. It's not until he placed his filth against the eternally, pu uh, eternally pure, the Alpha and Omega, the Jehovah Jireh, our provider, the Jehovah Nisi, our banner, the Jehovah Rapha, our healer, white as snow, lamb without blemish, sinless, glorified, all-powerful, all-knowing, wrathful, unchangeable, unmovable, justifiable, graceful, holy, holy, holy God that He understood more clearly and more vividly who He was. It's of no value for you to place your sins against the backdrop of Dane or of Dr. John or of Mr. Jerry or anybody else. 
We only truly understand who we are when we compare ourselves to God. Our lips are the sheets covering our deceitful hearts. The Bible says our lips are full of flattery. Psalms 12.2 says, With flattering lips and a double heart they speak. The Bible says our, our lips are deceitful. Psalm 34 says, Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Our lips are violent. Psalm 95, Swords are in our lips. The Bible goes on to say, Isaiah talking here, For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Outwardly, Isaiah was a righteous man. He was a godly man. But when he saw, heard, and felt God, he saw himself as, as he truly was. Church, can you see yourself this morning? Can we see ourselves individually? It's almost as if we are in a demonic lullaby in our land. Every time something happens, we wake up momentarily as a church, but Satan's going, It's okay. Go back to sleep. Church, are you sleepy this morning? After Isaiah's conviction, his view of God was brought further into focus because of the cleansing he received. Isaiah, verse 6, 6, 6, says this. Look at the cold bath he received. It says, then one of the seraphim flew to me. I mean, like, hold up, wait a minute. One of these things that's hovering around the throne is now flying to me? Uh, as I'm hiding at the doorpost, it, it flew to him. This angelic being called the fiery one who covers his eyes because he can't look upon the Lord who flies, who hides his feet, and who proclaims, holy, 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 to a thrice holy God causing the doorpost to shake, flies to me. But he doesn't come to me to destroy me, but to minister to me. Isaiah saw mercy as the seraphim ministered to him. Who is this God? The Bible says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. How hot or pure must this coal have been that a creature that is defined as the fiery one must use tongs to grab the coal? How clean must the lamb be in order to send my guilt and my shame? How white and pure must he be to touch the threshold of my lips that, that are filthy from the vow that comes out of my heart? I'll tell you, it must be eternally hot. It must be eternally pure. Even so much that these seraphim 
uh, had to use tongues to retrieve it because they too were created. Only an eternal God can sustain an eternal consuming fire. That's why we know, that's how we know that Jesus Christ Himself was the propitiation for our sins because anything else would have just been burned up. But He endured it. He endured the wrath. He endured the, the consuming fire of God. And we play church. The Bible says he touched my mouth with it. Man, this had to be painful. Talking to Dr. John, our lips are full of nerve endings. Full of them. A burning hot coal touching Isaiah's lips, touching your lips, touching my lips. Either there was a special blessing for God or pain didn't matter when compared to the incomparable majesty and holiness of an eternal God. We might think that a burning coal to the lips would be more painful than a vision of the holy God. But for Isaiah, it was more disturbing to see the holiness of God and to see his lack of holiness. One Puritan commentator said this, Jehovah, who is a consuming fire, can only fitly be served by those who are on fire, whether they be angels or man. The Bible says, he touched my mouth with this coal. Iniquity, goes on to say, iniquity is taken away and your sin is forgiven. Isaiah heard his sins being forgiven as the seraphim proclaimed. The Bible says he's a refining fire. Again, he says he's a consuming fire. His sin had to be burned away. Isaiah felt the burning coal as it purified his iniquity. Where are your sins this morning, loved one? Have they been purified by the holy God of creation? Or are you still licking your lips thinking you can do it yourself? After Isaiah was convicted of his sin and cleansed of his shame, he was ready to serve God. And so lastly... His view of God was brought into focus, allowing him to understand the commission that he received. Charles Spurgeon said, The effect of that live coal will be to fire the lips with heavenly flame. Oh, says one man, a flaming coal will burn the lips so that the man cannot speak at all. That is just how God works with us. It is by consuming the fleshly power that he inspires the heavenly might. Oh, let the lip be burnt. Let the fleshly power of eloquence be destroyed. But oh, for that live coal to make the tongue eloquent with heaven's flame, the true divine power which urged the apostles forward and made them conquerors of the whole world. He was ready to understand the commission. The Bible says in verse 8, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? God is looking for someone to send, and He's asking a question. Now how strange is it for God to ask a question? Did the all-knowing God not know the answer to the question? 
What does God wonder about? What questions could he possibly have? Has it ever occurred to you that nothing ever occurs to God? Sure, God knew the answer to his question. He knew it, but he is looking for willing servants. He's looking for that person who has, who has experienced verses 1 through 7. And said, there's nothing else that I can do or want to do or will do. Somebody better show me the door because I'm about to make one to go and serve God. Notice that the missionary is sent. It's a divine uh, a commission. It's a holy endeavor. Notice that the missionary has decided to go. God's divine will to sin and the human's will to go are in perfect cooperation with each other. Isaiah heard vividly. Dr. Allen's noticed me, uh, taught me to notice the, he said the nutrients is in the nuance, right? Look here in, in, in this next verse. Um, well, no, in verse 8. Yeah, it's right there. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and whom will go for us? I used to get points deducted when I wrote in this fashion. Compare the first person singular pronoun I with the first person plural pronoun us used in the same sentence. But listen, church, grammar doesn't apply to a holy God. And if we think our words can fully describe the essence, then we don't understand truly who he is. The old hymn writer says it best in the old hymn. I love it. The love of God. It says, could we with ink the ocean fill, and were the skies of parchment made, where every stalk on earth a quill, and every one a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We can't explain God. I forget who it says, who said it. If I did, I'd tell you. But he said when God wrote the Bible, he had to talk in baby Bible so that we could understand it. It's hard to explain what you saw. It's hard to explain what you experienced, what you felt. How can you? God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit divinely commission us to, a, to proclaim His glory. And how could we not? Perry, again, it seems like I'm picking on him. But Wednesday night in Grace Group, Perry asked this question. He said, how can we, Grace Church, proclaim the excellence of Him? The message that Dr. John preached last Sunday. My question is, how can we not? And if you cannot then you need to do a checkup from the neck up. You're going to miss heaven by 18 inches. How can we not? We've been called out of darkness into marvelous light. How can we not? How can you have this vision and sit here and do nothing?
Isaiah responds, here am I. Send me. Isaiah wanted to be the answer to God's question. Not only did he hear vividly, but he also responded immediately. God, I'll respond when uh, I get my finances in order. I'll I'll respond when I quit my job. I'll I'll respond when my health gets a little better. No, Isaiah responded immediately. Is that you this morning? Listen, church, this isn't t-shirt theology. Here I am, send me. This isn't, this isn't, here I am, send me to comfort. Aren't there, aren't there unreached people groups in the Caribbean? Uh, 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 on the island of Hawaii, there probably is lost people. Here I am, send me to, to safety, God. Here I am, send me to excitement. Send me to adventure. Because here's what I know. If you go for those reasons, you're going to come home like a dog with his tail tucked between his legs pretty quick. The only thing that's going to keep you on the field is God Himself. If you go because you remember Him sitting on His throne where no one else is worthy, and because of that you remember your position before a holy God, and you remember what He did for you in purifying your lips, your sin with His consuming fire, then you will swing out over a burning hell on a frayed rope with a water pistol and take the only hope there is to a dark world because what you have experienced and want them to experience, but mostly because you understand fully that He is worthy of everything that I have and he's worthy of everything that they have they deserve hell just like we deserve hell he's the only one that's worthy I want us not to forget the burning flames of our sin reaching for our feet I want us to remember that I want us to remember how dark, dark was. I want us to remember how dead, dead was. Ephesians 2, 1, spiritually dead. I want us to remember that we were born in sin as enemies against God, bent away from Him. I want us to remember that. But I want us to live in total victory that God has got us. If I could let go of Him, I would every day. In fact, I try every day. But thank the good Lord He's got me. When times get tough and you feel like you're barely hanging on, tying knot at the knot on the end of that frayed rope. And hold on because God has won and He is sitting on His throne. Isaiah didn't say, here I am, I'll go. He knew that he wouldn't go unless he was sent by God. God is a sending God. It's not that you sign up and you go and you start working and you say, God, join me here. No, you wait for God to send you and that's where you go. Many say, here I am, I will go, but never wait for the Lord to send them. We see in verses 9 and 10, Isaiah's mission described. He said, go and tell this people, keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but don't understand. Render their hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and eyes dim. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and return and be healed. Go and tell this people. Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. He's saying, go and preach to a people who will not listen to you, Isaiah. Isaiah. 
who will not respond to you, Isaiah. How many of you still want the shirt? Here I am, send me. Go and do this. After Isaiah heard vividly and responded immediately, God replied unequivocally. How can Isaiah possibly carry out this seemingly impossible task? I'll tell you how. His backdrop is still God sitting on the throne. His backdrop is still the fiery ones flying around and the doorposts shaking. I mean, I don't know whatever building code the throne room of God in heaven was built to, but my goodness, the doorposts were shaking because these seraphim were proclaiming. Listen, man left to himself could never, ever complete this mission. Who would want to? But the watermark etched on the back of our eyelids so that we can't even close our eyes and get away from this view of God will allow, will cause us to run through a wall for Him. The great Puritan John Trapp says in his commentary that Isaiah's mission was to preach them to hell. That was his mission. Preach them to hell. Go and preach to them. They're not going to respond. And in fact, it's going to harden their hearts because that's what the Bible will do if you hear it and you don't respond. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, their eyes dim. Sometimes it seems as if this is the ministry that, that I've been called to in Brazil. I, we can go months on end, uh, sometimes a year, and we see no conversions, and we come back and we hear missionaries about how a hundred came to Christ, and it just seems like when we go there, that doesn't happen for us. But the, thing, the reason that I stay there is because He is worthy. From a human-centered ministry, this ministry, this mission that God called Isaiah to would be very unfulfilling. But from a Christ-centered ministry, this is an eternally valuable The Bible says, and understand with their hearts and return and be healed. The Word of God can accomplish when it is received with open arms, open ears, and an open heart. When, when, when what we see, hear, and feel is properly aligned to a holy God, then the Word will accomplish or complete its work within us. But if we see it, we hear it, we feel it, and we do nothing with it, I don't know. And then finally, Isaiah's mission prescribed. Then I said, Lord, how long? And he answered, until cities are devastated without inhabitants. Houses are without people, and the land is utterly desolate. The Lord has removed men far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. Yet there will be a tenth portion in it, and it will again be subject to burning like a terebinth or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is the stump. 
It's a logical question that Isaiah does. Lord, how long? How long do you want me to do this? But I don't think it's a, a question in agony. Lord, how long? It's like, okay, God, I see what I see. How long do you want me to do this? I'm going to go do it. I'm going to go tell them people and then not respond. Because you're worthy. And God says, until cities are devastated and without inhabitants. Preach, Isaiah, until the destruction comes. Preach with a hope of restoration. A tenth will return. We see that. And we know that even the remnant itself would submit to further judgment. It may even be in judgment still today. This pericope, this story seems to end on a downer with not much hope. We're left with Isaiah being sent to a seemingly lost cause. But let me ask you, when Isaiah saw the Lord, who did he see? Well, he saw God in the second person of the Trinity. He saw Jesus before he added humanity to his deity. We know this because the Apostle John quotes Isaiah in, in, in chapter 6, verse 10, or, or uh, I'm sorry, quotes Isaiah 6, 10, and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as these things said were said when he saw the, uh, his glory and he spoke of him. John referring to Jesus. After Isaiah's view of the Lord, he understood that it wasn't about him, but about a worthy Savior. And we see that Isaiah went willingly. He went willingly. What about you this morning, church? What about you this morning, loved one? Maybe... Maybe you're somewhere, maybe you're still on the conviction part. Maybe the coal has not singed your lips. Maybe you're still living without hope in your life. Well, let me say to you this morning that God is sitting on His throne. And He's waiting for you to do business with Him. Maybe you're here this morning and God has done that in your life. But you're waiting for Him to send you. Well, good news he sent you. We can talk about it. We all have a part to play in it. Whether we go across the pond, cross-culturally, whether we go across the street and talk about the only hope there is, He has sent us. Where are you at this morning, church? Turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in His wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of His glory. Our dear gracious Heavenly Father, we sit here this morning as broken vessels. Maybe there's some in here this morning with unclean lips, Father. But God, we know that wherever each individual is this morning, you're sitting on your throne. God, we know that you are high and lifted up. 
God, we know that we can lay our head on our pillow tonight not knowing what tomorrow will hold, but knowing that you're in control, Father. Lord, I pray that we would take our eyes off of this world that we would remove the, the cultural things that are keeping us from being, seeing, hearing, feeling you. God, do business with us this morning. Lord, we love you. We praise you. And we thank you. Holy, holy, holy are you. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Sing that with me again, church.